Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today, I welcome Dr. Dave Rabin to the show. Dr. Rabin is a neuroscientist, board-certified psychiatrist, health tech entrepreneur, and inventor who has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for more than a decade. He is the co-founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience, which has developed the first scientifically validated wearable technology that actively improves energy, focus, and relaxation using a novel touch therapy that signals safety to the brain. In this episode, Dr. Rabin provides a primer in Neuroscience 101. We delve into the fascinating physiology of the natural pain-relieving molecules that our bodies endogenously create. We discuss how we can leverage different proven techniques to temper the sympathetic nervous system, the part of our nervous system associated with fight or flight, whether they are long, slow, deep breaths, soothing touch, or the vibrations of music, there are ways to biochemically induce a calming state to the body without needing external inputs like drugs, whether prescription or not. While experiencing the eye-to-eye contact and non-judgmental listening that also activates these molecules, we discuss the ways in which these techniques allow us to reappraise the perception of threat, whatever we consider the threat to be, whether it's morning traffic or the Serengeti of Facebook, thus activating a safety signal to the body that says, I am safe, I am okay right now. Now, Before pressing the record button while we were getting wired up for this podcast, Dave and I had a lively exchange about the vibrations produced by live music and how they impact our physiology. Dave references this exchange in the interview, so don't worry, you're not crazy. That part of the conversation didn't make the final cut, but we did cover the science behind that phenomenon later in the episode. So if you're interested in cool, functional, and integrative medicine-based programs with teachers like Dr. Mark Hyman, Mary Pardee, Zach Bush, or Dr. Roger Schwelt on topics such as gut health, sleep, stress reduction, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leave us a review on your favorite podcatcher. As you will soon hear, Dr. Rabin's interest in biofeedback has led him down a fascinating rabbit hole that has blessed the rest of us with his amazing innovation. So without further delay, I present to you Dr. David Rabin. Cool. So I'm psyched to dive in. I'm sure there'll be many different things, digressions, because I think we share a lot of different interests from music um, to soil, um, but certainly uh, neuroscience and the functions of the brain. And I guess as a way to kick off the conversation, I know how much you've studied the impacts of stress 
on <clears throat> psychological health and what we can do about it. So with that framing, um, maybe you could provide a little bit of neuroscience 101 because I think that'll help scaffold the conversation for people in some definitional work, um, which is helpful. So there are certain human behaviors of, um, that I am making quite consciously that are essentially what one might call top-down, mm -hmm. of like, hey, let's wave to Nick. Hey, Nick, what's up, man? Um, Nick's holding it down here in the studio. Um, that would be reflective of a conscious choice or conscious behavior. But I would say the overwhelming majority of things that are happening here in this physiology, uh, the billions of chemical reactions that are happening every second um, in our bodies, these are happening on sort of under the crust of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So these might be categorized as bottom up um, sort of functions. Mm -hmm. And many of these functions are governed by the nervous system and a certain component of the nervous system called the autonomic nervous system. So let's start there. Could you untangle a bit what is the autonomic nervous system and what are its primary components happy to and and thank you so much for having me on oh, jeff it's a pleasure to be here with you yeah um so so i think the best place to start is to understand that and and again i i present this in a way where i'm trying to put together a, a big picture that is combined with all the things that I learned in medical school yeah. on a very high level, but also all the things that I learned just from seeing patients and in my regular life and from my own mentors outside of school, outside of the educational traditional didactic framework, because there's a lot that is not covered, right? Yes. As we all know. And, and so, you know, we weren't taught the autonomic nervous system that well in medical school. We were taught that what happens when it gets disrupted in disease states, but in healthy states, the autonomic nervous system, which is com composed of, of two core parts, the sympathetic nervous system, which is what we call the fight or flight nervous system, which is responsible for getting responding to threat, perceived or actual threat, and then getting us to safety fight by fight or flight, or potentially playing dead, freezing, hmm. right? And then the other side of it is the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest nervous system, which is triggered by safety. And that's supposed to turn on when we're in a safe place, which sends resources like blood and oxygen to our all of our organ systems and all of our body parts that we want to turn on when we're safe, when we're not in threat. So thinking about that on a, on a broader level, and you know, it, it helps to go back third, you know, 10, 10 million years, right, to our ancient mammalian ancestors. In evolutionary history, mammals all have the same functional nervous system. The autonomic nervous system that I just described to you, sympathetic and parasympathetic, goes back probably, according to Eric Kandel's work, who won the Nobel Prize in 2000 for discovering the way we learn and remember, it's something like 300 million years, right? It's a really long time, way, way, way before mammals, way before humans. This nervous system governs our response to threat and safety in the environment. Even bacteria have an ability to respond to something that they determine as either threatening to their survival or safe. If they didn't do that, they would not live very long, right? And that's how they adapt all these infectious properties so they can survive. Right. Yeah. Makes total sense. 
So thinking about it from that perspective, the systems we're talking about are extremely ancient. They're as old as life itself, right? And these have evolved into what we're called the autonomic nervous system, which is the nervous system is connected to our brains that is literally touching every single part of our bodies. Every single cell, for the most part, is getting some signaling from the autonomic nervous system, usually through a combination of nerve endings and blood flow, because the autonomic nervous system is representing the way that our brains either top down because we consciously will it or bottom up because the environment tells us that we should either send blood to our reproductive, immune, metabolic, sleep and recovery system because we're safe, or that we should send blood to our skeletal muscles and our motor cortex and our fear center of our brains and our heart and lungs because we need to get the heck out of the way of this lion that's coming into our cave right now, right? And those are two very different situations. And we don't want our bodies ever to be sending blood to our reproductive system when we perceive there could be a lion outside our cave, right? That would be a big, big mistake, <laughs> right? We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here, yeah. right? So we, so it's really important to understand this because we evolved to be this way <clears throat> and every animal evolved to be this way because that's what's just functionally required to survive, right? Now taking a step back into, or a step forward into modernity, modern life, right? Thankfully, thanks, we have collaboratively adapted together as a human species. We've worked together for so long to overcome all the stresses of the environment that we don't have lions outside our cave anymore that often, right? We don't have sur true survival threat surrounding us that often, which true survival threat meaning predators, total lack of food, lack of air, lack of water, lack of acceptance, total acceptance by our community, excommunication from the community. These things don't happen as often as they used to back when we didn't have all of the comforts and technology we have today. So what happens is that stress response nervous system, that sympathetic nervous system that responds to the lion is now doing something that it was never intended to do, which is it's responding to things that are not actually threats, like too many emails, too much blue light, too much traffic, too much news, right? Too much pandemic threat, whatever it is, right? All of these, too many responsibilities, all of these things are stimulating our bodies in ways that are telling our bodies, hey, this is something you need to pay attention to. This is something that's trying to grab your attention. But if we haven't trained ourselves to interpret it properly, like traffic sounds, for instance, or traffic being in the car when you're on your way to work and you're late, and you interpret that as a survival threat, then our sympathetic nervous system kicks on. We lose awareness from the environment because we get tunnel vision, which is what the sympathetic nervous system does to get you out of threat of a lion. But then we actually put ourselves in threat by making poor decisions while we're driving and not shoulder checking, yeah. right? <laughs> and that's a yep. real survival threat. So this is what's called misappropriating threat, which is what causes a lot of, of which chronic stress makes us do because it sends all of our, it imbalances our autonomic nervous system over time, which effectively creates a resource allocation problem whereby we only have so much blood to go around for our whole bodies. We only have so much blood to go around. So when we're doing things that require our dedicated focus, like driving a car or having a one-on-one -on -one interaction with another human being, we want our attention to be on that experience, not on thinking about how uh, I, I might have left my car door, car unlocked or how um, the things I saw on the news 
three weeks ago and how they're still bothering me or how I didn't get enough sleep last night. I want to be in the moment with you because that's how I'm going to do the best that I can do right now in any situation. And so that requires me to remind myself that I'm safe and that all those other things are not actually real threats. They're perceived threats that my body has learned to attribute threat to. But if I remind myself I'm safe, then I rewire my brain to remind myself that I'm not actually under threat and that I can be present with you. And there's lots of techniques we can talk about to do that. But that's the gist. That's beautiful. Well done. That was great. (laughs) Um, Essentially, evolution is slow. But culture is pretty fast, particularly the last 120 years of culture. And so, you know, when I uh, dissect a little bit of what you're talking about, um, sort of modernity has outpaced adaptive mechanisms developed over hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions of years um, that have uh, conferred benefit to humans. And now, like you said, you know, yeah, the advent of 24-hour on-demand entertainment, well, that sounds great. I love watching uh, Fantastic Fungi on Netflix, you know? super edifying, totally entertaining, or whatever it happens to be. But the fact that I can do that at 10 p.m. at night, if you actually start to understand human physiology and the mechanisms of play, well, that blue light is hitting part of your retina, which is essentially like signaling your pineal gland to either produce or not produce melatonin or um, et cetera. We, we don't have to go through that particular mechanism, but that's just a, an example of how essentially culture has outpaced some of the more adaptive mechanisms of humanity um, or not just humanity, bacteria too, as you say. And there could be an argument there to say that bacteria are conscious, um, which we might go into a conversation about consciousness at some point, which might be interesting. But to stick here for a moment, um, the nervous system in this respect is also very connected to our endocrinology. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the sympathetic state and the parasympathetic state, well, both of those are concomitant with certain hormones or neurotransmitters um, chemical messengers, if you will, that uh, that have great impact on a whole Everything. panoply yeah. of, of, of systems in the body. Right. So um, why don't we start, let's start with the parasympathetic for a moment, because I think it's really the hormones and neurotransmitters that are associated with the sympathetic nervous system that we probably need to probe a little bit more. But the, the parasympathetic are, the system is associated with what are the primary neurotransmitters and hormones and messengers that are associated with that particular state? So that's a great question. I, I think the, 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 there's lots, there's way too many to mention. Yeah, but, the, sure. but I think some of the most important ones that we think of most commonly are serotonin, dopamine, uh, uh, endorphins. Endorphins are some of our natural, some of our natural um, joy neurochemicals that also facilitate decreases in inflammation. Similarly, in that vein, and what we call endogenous opioid molecules. So these are these are molecules that are made by our body 
that are natural pain relieving molecules that bind to our in opioid receptors that are in our bodies mm -hmm. that naturally relieve our own pain mm. through practice, right? Of learning to tolerate pain, we can actually learn and, and surrounding ourselves by soothing parasympathetic stimulation. Something as simple as taking long, slow, deep breaths can do this. Soothing touch can do this. Soothing music can do it, right? These kinds of parasympathetic stimuli from our environment can send our body into a state that results in the increase of release of endogenous opioids, our own natural pain relief. Another similar one that's interesting is oxytocin, right? Yeah. Sitting here having an eye-to-eye -eye contact conversation is releasing oxytocin for both of us into our brains, which facilitates bonding, right? Yes. One of the most yeah. powerful ways to make ourselves feel safe. And, and my milk is letting down, <laughs> and, and I'm going into contractions. <laughs> no. uh, uh, we may need a rag over here. Yeah. <laughs> it Clean up on aisle six. Yeah. Send in the midway. Um, and the, the other one yeah. that I mentioned is really, really important that I think we don't talk enough about is endocannabinoids, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So we have cannabinoid receptors that we evolved over millions of years that are one of the most common receptors. That the, I think CB1, the cannabinoid receptor 1, is the most common G protein coupled receptor, which is a complex way of saying this is a very special kind of important receptor. It's the most common one in all mammals, right? Hmm. And it's a cannabinoid receptor. We evolved that over millions of years because it is extremely important for managing inflammation, right? And toning hmm. down inflammation and managing pain and helping us feel balanced in states of extreme stress. And we make molecules especially when we're experiencing soothing touch as one example, that we make anti-inflammatory molecules that stimulate that receptor. And mm. when we don't have the things that's, that allow us to make enough of those molecules, well, what do you think we do? We seek them out from the environment in the form of cannabis, yeah. right? Because then that's supplementing things we're not getting ourselves. When we're in too much pain and we're not making, whether it's emotional or physical pain, and we're not making enough of our own pain molecules, like endorphin, pain relieving molecules like endorphins or opiate, opioid molecules, we seek pain relief from the outside, right? And so there's a very distinct relationship here between the kinds of things we look to the environment to put into our bodies to help us feel better and what we can actually make ourselves. And that it's important to note that all these molecules, this whole milieu of positive parasympathetic molecules can all be generated naturally. That's right. Which is the most empowering thing that you can do as a human being for yourself. I mean, if you begin to pull at serotonin, for example, which is celebrated often as sort of this feel-good neurotransmitter uh, that can invoke a sense of tranquility and serenity and calm, um, well, a lot of that is synthesized in the gut by bacteria right? Um, with the antecedent of particular amino acid structures that are amino acids that you get exogenously from diet. Mm -hmm. So tryptophan, for example, um, or you can supplement with 5-HTP and, and things. But I, what I would say, it's like if you can find ways to, if you once you begin to untangle the mechanisms for how, <clears throat> how some of these compounds are synthesized in your body, 
then you can start to adopt the protocols that could potentially upgrade. Now, I'm not saying that just eat a lot of tryptophan or foods with tryptophan and and B6, and all of a sudden you're going to be like overflowing with serotonin at any moment. Uh, there's a lot of other complexities involved. You need to have the bacteria, streptococcus and enterococcus, all these other bacteria that help to synthesize it. And you know, if you're feeding your gut well, the butyrate is helping to sort of extract it. Um, but um, but these are, I think this just points to there's a tremendous amount of agency once we begin to really delve into our own physiology and understand some of these mechanisms. So exactly on the other side, let's say now we've got um, you know the sympathetic nervous system, which seems to be overly activated in this day and age. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ways that it's framed. Sometimes it's called sympathetic overload or amygdala hijack, et cetera. But that state is also has its own cadre of neurotransmitters and hormones. Can you expound on, on those? Sure. I mean, I think most of us have heard of them, right? It's epinephrine, endor um, uh, norepinephrine, uh, and, and all of the things that increase blood flow or, and constrict blood vessels and increase blood flow to, to the things we mentioned earlier first that are required for survival. Skeletal muscles that help us move and, and fight off things. Our heart, which helps pump blood to those critical parts of the body. Our lungs that help us get oxygenated blood more effectively and help dilate the lungs. Cortisol, right, is another one that is an yeah. increase in states of stress that, uh, that helps to increase blood flow to certain parts of the body and manage inflammation um, and increase awareness. And, uh, and then also the motor cortex of the brain and our fear center, this is all governed by the release of, of these molecules. And I think the endorphin, the, the epinephrines and the norepinephrines are two of the most critical molecules. And there are lots of other ones, but I think the thing that's most interesting is what are the molecules that are impacted by both systems dynamically, mm. right? So hmm. one molecule in particular that we don't talk about enough, but that I think you're probably well aware of is nitric oxide, Yeah. right? So nitric oxide was known as, I think, endothelial-derived de endothelial <laughs> factor or something like that when, okay. it, when it was first discovered because nobody knew what it was, but they knew that it had this seemingly magical ability to dilate blood vessels, right? right? But only for seconds at a time. Why is that important if it only lasts seconds at a time? Well, it's important because the, the, the cells that line the inside of all of our blood vessels make it mm -hmm. in a moment's notice. So that means that when you have, you're sitting here, right? We're talking, we're having a nice quiet conversation. All of a sudden, you hear some super loud crashing noise, right? We both jump up. I'm like, what's going on? What's happened in that instant moment to protect ourselves is that within that instant, our amygdala flashes a signal that says something new and potentially threatening has occurred. That signal is interpreted even pre-consciously, so before we're even aware of it. Right. That sends a signal down through our hypothalamus, which regulates our entire autonomic nervous system, that says to all of our gut all of our creative and empathetic brain, emotional brain and to all of our gut reproductive and immune systems. And it sends a signal to all the vessels going to all those systems and says, clamp down, decrease nitric oxide production, mm. right? So then all of those organ systems instantly get depleted of blood flow B6 
because nitric oxide production gets sent from the sympathetic nervous system, sends a signal to all of the vessels going to the skeletal muscles, the motor cortex, the heart, and the lungs, is dilate big. Open up blood flow to these critical organs that are going to get you to safety right now. And in a moment's notice, your entire blood flow balance has shifted, right? And that allows all those critical hormones like epinephrine and norepinephrine that are going to f- allow the body to function at its physical peak to get us out of a threatening situation to go to the places it needs to go and allows the parts of the brain and the body that need to get us to safety to get us to safety. However, once that safety situation is achieved and we recognize, okay, we can settle down again, we can restart our conversation, we're not actually under threat, we're okay, that is supposed to completely reverse within seconds to minutes supposed to have decreased nitric oxide to the skeletal muscles and the, mu- and the heart and the lungs, and then increase nitric oxide back to the reproductive, digestive, creative, empathetic, mm. emotional, right? And that funnels blood flow back to where we want it to go and restores the autonomic balance. In those of us who have had trauma, one or multiple traumatic events, that balance takes a lot longer to restore. Yeah. And then we wind up in a situation where our our, our threat response system is constantly sapping resources from the emotional nervous system and from our sleep system, our recovery system, our digestive system, our reproductive system, and immune system. And it's still sending them to the skeletal muscles and the heart and lungs when they don't need it. Yeah. But those systems are still in high demand, right? Right. So it's imagine you have all these parts of your body that you want to function well, like your gut, and your gut's being like, I need more blood to function. I need more resources to function. I need more blood to carry waste product away from my cells that are metabolizing and breaking down food. But wait, there's no blood. So what do I do? I'm working really hard and I'm working on empty, right? And then this is when dysfunction starts to occur over time and we get disease. Yeah. It's really that that fight or flight is really suited for acute situations. Exactly. And... um, and not chronic situations. And where we get into trouble is when we're chronically in fight or flight and we have a chronic infusion or secretion of the hormones and neurotransmitters that are associated with that state. Exactly. Um, I often think about, well, there's like the age old adage of you are what you eat, but you're actually more exactly, I suppose, you're, you are what your body can absorb. Mm-hmm. the nutrients that, that you can absorb in your small intestine largely. And if you are in a sympathetic state all of the time, you could be eating organic kale from here to Kansas, but you're not necessarily, your digestion is not functioning optimally for you to absorb and metabolize um, macronutrients and micronutrients, et cetera. So right. essentially- Wonder why so many people have IBS, right? Right. And so, you know, there's all these protocols. I mean- yeah, I always joke with my kids. It's like, who's going to say grace tonight around the table? I mean, we're we're heathens almost. <laughs> we're barely agnostic. I mean, of course, we have our own spiritual yeah. practices, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. We're, we're far from a family that says grace. We actually have a very funny ritual called Rosebud Thorn, which maybe I'll, I'll share with you. But what it does, really, the purpose of that, or just to show gratitude for your food, mm-hmm. is to essentially move yourself out of any potential sympathetic state to essentially move blood flow back into your gut so you are more uh, uh, your digestive mechanisms are more available mm-hmm. and um, you're prepared so, to receive nourishment yes right? prepping your body yes 
Um, and so there, there can be a whole bunch of different techniques that one can employ specifically around that. But the worst thing that you could probably do is be on Facebook or Twitter while you're eating. Or watching the news while you're eating. Or watching the news while you're eating. So we'll get into that, um, essentially what I call the greatest non-consensual psychological experiment <laughs> of all time. Um, it, and I'm speaking specifically about 24-hour news and mm -hmm. social media. Um, because I think very few of us really understand what is happening to our physiology as we spend on average 10, 11 hours in front of a screen, especially like our children. Mm -hmm. Like I saw, I have three daughters, three teenage daughters. <laughs> yeah. Bless your soul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Build me a cabin and buy me a shotgun. Um, <laughs> that's a, another matter, but you know, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Um, I mean, they're wonderful, but, uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very, very concerned about what is actually happening to their neurology and their physiology as they experience life completely differently than I experienced life as a young person. You mean when we remember the days before the internet? Yeah, pretty much. Um, the neural so, network we created that took over our neural network. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, we know that these these compounds or these molecules like cortisol, when they're chronic, um, I mean, we know very well the impact of chronic cortisol on, let's say, uh, you know, blood glucose levels, for example. So if you're running high cortisol levels all the time, you're going to run, generally, everybody's different, but you're going to run high blood sugar levels. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's going to lead to insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. We know that that's going to lead to excess deposition of adipose tissue. We know that that's going to lead to inflammation through these glycoproteins. We know that that's going to migrate to the brain in some cases to lead to inflammation of the brain. So it's like, we obviously diabetes and all of the downstream um, and, and correlated uh, impacts of diabetes. So and that's just one thing that cortisol is impacting. We know that chronic cortisol is not great for the gut um, and for gut flora and the microbiome. So, you know, there's, we know that um, being in this constant state of sympathetic overload is connected to all of these other negative knock on impacts. So, what are some of the modern influences that are pushing us into this chronic state of sympathetic overload so it's a it's a lot of things yeah. right i mean it's it's hard to really narrow it down to one thing but i think if we're if we're trying to simplify it in a reductionist sense it's there's too much information coming in and there's not enough tools to process said incoming information Right, so we have we are more connected as human beings in this world than we've ever been. We have supercomputers in our pockets and on our wrists, supercomputers that are yeah. constantly feeding us information, right? And this information that's non-local information, so it's information that's not related to this right now. It's information that's related to that over there, and then that across the world, and that wherever else, right? That is not here. So it's t pulling us out of the present and sending us all this information that we are told we're supposed to pay attention to. And yet we were not taught the, the skills well 
most of us at least, I know I wasn't really taught them particularly well, of how to sift through that information, understand what is important to me right now, what is deserving of my attention right now of all this incoming stuff, and what can be kind of acknowledged and relegated for a later time, mm-hmm. right? Because there's just too much yeah. to take in all at once. And and ultimately, the, our nervous system was just not designed for it, right? Our nervous system was designed to process what's happening right now, to intake information around us that's relevant to our local immediate situation right here, not what's happening on the other side of the world, right? Not what somebody like our government is doing to another people in another government governed by some other people that we feel is negatively representing us. That's just too much for us to consider while we're trying to focus at work or do our homework, right? Because it's not something we even have control over in any significant way. And so what happens is we start to think and, well, we forget, we forget what is important to right now. Mm. And so we start to get lost in the information. And when we start to get lost in the information and we don't have the tool set highly trained to process that information, then we basically are just overstimulated all the time, literally bathing in information that most of which we have no control over. And what is the source of anxiety? Well, anxiety is spending a good percentage of our time each day, which we only have so much time each day to spend it paying attention to stuff. And we're spending whatever percentage of it paying attention to things we don't have control over. Right. Mm-hmm. And how do you reduce anxiety? Well, every technique, whether it's breath work, whether it's soothing touch, soothing music, psychotherapy techniques, uh, exercise, mindfulness, yoga, the list goes on. They are all singly based on one principle, which is redirecting your attention to things we have control over. We spend more time mm-hmm. thinking about things we have control over. We feel more in control more of the time. We, yeah. we feel better, just, more anxiety comes you gotta, down. You got to recite the serenity prayer, yeah. the Rhino Niebuhr every day. Right. Um, or, or, yeah, I mean, this was a t- core tenet of stoicism, basically. Right. Right, and, yeah, the, and yeah. there's a lot of different. Like this isn't yeah. this is this is not new, right? This yeah. is an like, these are concepts that I'm explaining with kind of like modern my take of modern psychology, but these go back thousands of years to every ancient religion and Buddhism and every ancient tribal tradition sees this the same way, which is that if we allow our attention to be controlled from the bottom up, from the environment only all the time, and we don't learn or practice any top down control. Meaning, when something's coming in, we don't ask ourselves the very basic first question of which is taught in cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's the whole premise of it, which is, question your thoughts, right? Right. Is this thought true and useful to me right now? If we don't give ourselves the, the, the credit to know that we deserve to ask that question of every thought, and that every thought has to pass that test to be worthy of our time and attention, then... Going back to the topic of consciousness you brought up earlier, which is at the heart of all of this, we are literally allowing vampiric thoughts into our consciousness because we are allowing whatever it is to come in. We're not questioning it. And we're saying, okay, this is part of me now because I'm supposed to pay attention to it without question. Yeah. So to regain our attention, to regain our our, our consciousness control, it is imperative. It is absolutely essential that we take control of our most valuable resource that we have as human beings, which is our ability to control our attention, which is what every single advertising company is fighting for, right? Yeah. Well, that might be all we have control over. And I mean, 
there's a, probably a separate podcast to have around determinism versus free will. But if there is any window of, of free will, it's essentially where we can focus our attention moment to moment. And, um, you know, increasingly the systems and structures in our modern world are vying for that particular focus moment to moment. In fact, they're designed from an algorithmic perspective to capture that attention moment to moment. And so if you look at some of the more um, sort of insidious elements of, of social media, for example, it, it's based on this premise where you take essentially an anecdote that gives something plausibility, you sensationalize and scandalize that, you layer an editorial bias over the top, you deploy it in a manner that leverages human negativity bias. And makes Out, it relatable. Yes. Outrage, fear, yeah. anger, um, in order to increase watch time or engagement or likes or followers to sell ads or to garner influence. Mm -hmm. And this is how, obviously, you know, there's, we're in LA, there's, 10,000 people with nose rings <laughs> thinking about, you know, optimized titling around these uh, snippets of social media content in order to capture that particular attention and, and leverage the algorithm in that particular way. So, you know, um, it's no wonder, really, that, you know, that you as a clinical psychiatrist are probably quite busy. Oh, yeah. Um and, you know, I'll let you lay out the litany of different kind of conditions that you see day to day. Um, but I have to imagine that it is very connected to these topics that we're discussing. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I mostly work with, so I'm a trauma and addiction psychiatrist mm -hmm. for the most part. And I think that, you know, thinking about someone very dear to both of our hearts, you know, Gavin Mate, who's yeah. you're hosting uh, soon at your at your commune, you know, there is, there is, has been an underpinning of, of trauma in all across all mental illness that has been hinted at for a very, very long time. We have seen it. We have observed it. We have, we know that the common saying goes, hurt people hurt people, yeah. right? Because people who experience trauma, who do not receive adequate support afterwards, or who are led to believe it's their fault, don't process that trauma. They build shame and guilt around it. And then they accidentally, usually wind up hurting others that they mm. love as a result. Yeah. And so when we look at the organization effectively of of what we call diagnoses of mental illness it's not the diagnoses are really not for you or anyone else they're for right. us as clinicians to communicate patterns of behavior to each other right these patterns these patterns of behavior which is hinted at by by our doc which tom insel uh, used to run the um the nih you know developed in the nimh um developed as a brilliant protocol to try to you know combat the the dsm the diagnostic manual for mental illness with some evidence base that said, hey, if you look at all the data, there's a framework here that shows that a lot of this can be tied back to traumatic events. No matter what diagnosis you have, 
that we call it, perhaps the diagnosis is not what we should be treating. Perhaps we should be seeing the diagnosis as a manifestation of poorly coped trauma, right? That has resulted in degree of dysfunction that we're now calling depression or that we're now calling anxiety disorder or now calling PTSD or schizophrenia. And then looking at that, well, it changes the whole framework because it's not, I'm going to go use some medicine to numb you to your feelings as the first step. It's okay. How do I help you non-judgmentally understand that some bad stuff happened to you, you were not supported, it's not your fault, and we're going to figure out how to get you to a place where you can reappraise that situation and and recognize that it's not your fault Hmm. so that you can process what happened and move on. And so I think going back to what you were saying before, there's just one, one thing I wanted to add that's really important because you said one of the only things about free will that we can control is our attention. And that is, I think, critically important to understand because that's half of what we can control. Our attention is the part of our free will we can control that is regarding what we decide is allowed in to our consciousness. What we pay attention to literally dictates what is allowed into our consciousness, which means what's allowed to become part of us. The other 50% is our intention, which is our output, Hmm. right? What we decide we want to put our human energy into is the other thing we have control over with our free will. And those two things ideally should be in alignment together. And often they're not. And that creates dissonance or disconnection. So there are these events that happen in life Um, often in childhood. They might be events related to neglect or abuse um, that are acute, and then they might just be chronic, but they induce trauma. Um, The trauma is what we bring with us, right? And... um, And what is curious to kind of dissect is how that trauma-inducing event marks us. Now, there is certain research going on right now about like the methylation of of genes and trauma, for example, that trauma induces the markings on particular genes such that they express themselves in different particular ways. They turn off or they turn on, they make this protein, they don't make that protein, they turn off BDNF, they turn on BRCA, they turn off tumor suppressor genes, all these kinds of things. So we're really just honestly on the forefront right now of, of unpacking. So there is a physiological or a biochemical component of trauma. Um, which I suppose is a whole kind of field of trauma and epigenetics, mm-hmm. which is a whole world. And I don't know if that's a world that you've touched a lot of, but my sense is that it, is that it has. Then, you know, there's this other component of trauma that I, I think is, is fascinating that I've learned a little bit about, is that when you ask someone what happened in, in your life, recount something in your early childhood that you really remember. Mm-hmm. Most oftentimes, that is a traumatic event. 
And one of the reasons that that memory is so ensconced and ingrained is that when that event occurs, it actually, there is a hormonal response in your body to mark that particular synaptic connection with epinephrine in a way that seems to sort of cement that neural network. And so I wonder if you can kind of pull some of this stuff apart because what I'm interested, I mean, yeah, there is sort of more of a soft tissue of like we carry trauma forward and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some scara and, you know, these ideas. But I think there is something that we're trying to discover of what is the actual biochemistry of trauma. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. This is something that's been fascinating for me for a very long time. (laughs) And and I work actually with, I I have the privilege of working with Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who is one Mm -hmm. of the people who discovered the epigenetic relationship in Holocaust survivors between people who have uh, survived very severe trauma and people who who did not. And that these expression changes in cortisol genes, which is what uh, she discovered, in these folks actually is passed down across generations, which is pretty wild. Yeah, yeah that, those, that those methylation markers can be transgenerational right. is like, whoa. Bananas. Because we yeah. used to think it was just environmental. We used to just think yeah. hurt people hurt people. So that's why these things get passed yeah. on. But it's actually much more than that. It's hurt people hurt people. But even if you were had the best life ever and the safest life ever being raised by your Holocaust survivor, grandparent or parent, chances are, no matter how safe your upbringing was, and no matter how little trauma you had to face, you'll still have epigenetic markings, methylation marks on your cortisol genes that were passed down from your ancestors that are important because they actually give you a predisposition to mental illness like PTSD. Yeah. Right? So this is critical to understand because there's a difference between epigenetic on the DNA and mm-hmm. genetic in the DNA or the DNA, yeah. right? So do you mind if I get into this? For yeah, one please side? do. I think it, it could use some definitional work. Because I think we spend a, a way too much time thinking about genetics and the DNA, which is interesting. Don't get me wrong. It's fascinating. Yeah. But it's not changeable in any kind of natural way. We can't change yeah. our genetics on our own. And in fact, we're not supposed to. Our genetics are meant to be the same in every cell in our bodies for our entire lives, except our sperm and egg cells, right? Every other cell in our body has exactly the same 26 chromosomes, exactly the same DNA on purpose. Yeah. The only things that disrupt it are toxins and things that, like too much sunlight that breaks DNA and causes remodeling, which causes cancer, right? So these are breaking and disrupting DNA is actually quite dangerous. And we often don't want to do that. But for every DNA strand that we have that encodes for maybe 100 proteins or 1,000 proteins, which are actually the functional parts of the, of the body that make the cells go, yeah. every single, like cortisol, for instance, every single one of those genes of DNA code has methyl markers on it and other chemical markers that tell it, express this part, don't express this part. For instance, if we have all the same DNA in our brain cells and all the same DNA in our skin cells, what tells our skin to be skin and our brain to be brain, right? Well, it's epigenetics. It's the markings on the DNA that says, hey, in the skin, don't express, turn off the brain cell proteins and turn on the skin cell proteins in the brain, turn on the brain cell proteins and turn off the skin cell proteins. Yeah, and when 
the methylation essentially gets screwed up or hypermethylated, and then you you're supposed to have this very healthy differentiation where like a hepatocyte becomes proliferates into another hepatocyte or whatever. But once you start to mess with this methylation um, and cells stop getting differentiated properly, that's when you can get into trouble. Right. Exactly. And so this is important to note because, again, we don't have the ability to change our DNA hard code. The hard code is the map that we're born with and it's the map that we die with if we're lucky and don't get cancer, right? The epigenetic code is the code that our parents also passed down to us that is on top, the methylation you're talking about, that's on top of the DNA, that's slightly different in every cell, that regulates everything about how our body functions and how it's like the interface that records how our body is responding to the environment. So getting back to what you were saying earlier about how we respond to trauma and how certain memories seem to be encoded more deeply than others, well, all memories are encoded in our neural networks in our brains and they form neural pathways, but certain things are much more memorable than others, probably because, well, let's just be real, they were more meaningful to us, mm-hmm. right? Why are fearful memories sometimes easier to recollect? Well, they made us feel like we might be about to die or we might be about to be in a serious situation that we can't remedy. Why do we remember that so well? Because we don't want to ever wind up in that situation ever again by our own hand. Yeah. Once you wind up there, you realize you don't want to be there. You do not want to do something that's going to put you back there if by accident, right? Yeah. I mean, I was locked in a locker when I was in seventh grade, and it's a very strong memory, mm-hmm. and I still suffer from a good deal of claustrophobia. Even with all the years of meditation and endless yep. modalities that I have at my fingertips, um, this was a, obviously a, something that became very ingrained. Right. So I remember that happening to me too, and it was extremely unpleasant. Extremely yeah. unpleasant. And it takes years to, to process it, sometimes decades to process it. And the reason is because... What we and again, this is getting into speculation because the science is not here yet. But what the science has given us the framework to understand is that it's very, very likely that what's happening is that the amount of meaningfulness of an experience facilitates a tighter bonding between our neurons and our brains, which creates a tighter learning system, a tighter memory formation between the memories of these experiences and the associations of the experience, like the smells and the tastes and the sights and the sounds and the feelings, and they all get more tightly connected because it was so meaningful. And this can happen for positive experiences too, which we see in psychedelic experiences, for instance, or ecstatic experiences, awe-inspiring experiences. And you can, and what happens is, or what's likely to be happening is that that degree of meaning has an impact on how much epigenetic modification is occurring. Mm. Again, we don't know this for sure, but this seems to be what the a, a very strong theory for the way that these things seem to work. And so the, the good news is that if epigenetics are storing a map of the impact of the environment on us with respect to meaning, then meaning 
can be modified or that, that, you know, experiencing other kinds of meaningful experiences that we choose to intentionally experience and put our attention on then has the ability to restore and remodel our epigenetic code and help our DNA express its, express itself more effectively, yeah. right? Towards our goals of being calm, feeling uninflamed, experiencing joy, and just being our healthy, happy selves that are on the path to achieving our fullest potential. But it requires an understanding that this is actually something we have control over. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on around us we do not have control over. As soon as you realize what you actually have control over, it that's the empowering moment of like, oh, okay, I can actually do something about this. That's cool. So let's stay, let's go on that journey. Right. Yeah. There is um I'm gonna go off road just for a second because oh, I think you might be interested in it. So I, I read it there was this clinical study that was uh administered, I believe it was in Holland, and uh, I'll try to dig it up for the show notes. And it was um administered on a group, on an experiment group and control group. Uh, that had arachnophobia. Mm. So these are, and I think it's been administered around other phobias. So it's it's not exactly trauma, but some of the components are similar. So they they got a group. I think it was you know not a huge study, but it was maybe fifty people. So twenty five people in the experiment group, twenty five people in the control group, and they brought. Uh, so the experiment group all got a beta blocker. The beta blocker, I think it was like propanol or I'm not oh, sure. Propanol. Propanol, yeah. Uh, essentially, it's it's beta blockers are generally, I think, given to folks who have had some sort of cardiovascular high blood issue, pressure, high blood pressure or, or whatever. Yeah. It sort of lowers heart rate, I mm-hmm. believe. Um, and they brought these people in the room, and then they brought a tarantula in a, in a glass jar, and uh, you know they 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 passed it to the subject and the subject had to like hold the jar. And then maybe in some cases they opened the jar or whatever. And the experiment group that it had been administered, the beta blocker got exposed to their greatest fear to this spider. But because they had this particular beta blocker that blocked essentially the sympathetic nervous system or a good part of it anyway, yeah, or a spike of epinephrine. They got to experience that particular trauma without um, having a a response. Right. And this um, not only was effective during the duration of the experiment itself, but it, there seems to be evidence that for three to six months afterwards, it sort of remarked that connection in a way without that epinephrine spike such that that phobia was unwound. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty interesting. And then obviously the control group did, didn't have that experience at all. They were like, ah, the opposite. fuck. Yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that is just to say that these neural networks can be unwound and rebuilt. And retrained. And, and retrained. And, and a lot of that is biochemical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, but, you know, I think well, we'll get into ways that we may be able to to do this without the administration of a, of a beta blocker, let's say. Well, well, there's lots of ways to do it, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a perfect example of exposure therapy. Yes. Right. So cognitive. So the leading psychotherapy for PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, and phobia, is cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure. So mm. it combines this idea I mentioned earlier, which 
is questioning our thoughts, say, is this thought that I'm feeling right now, is this fear of this tarantula true and useful to me right now, with exposure in a safe environment to the fearful, the thing that I consider to be threatening, the tarantula, mm. right? You have the beta blocker on, you're inducing a biochemically calming state to the body, you introduce the tarantula in a cage, the tarantula is in a cage, so it can't hurt you, but it's really close to you, but it can't hurt you. And you're able to in that moment because your body is not overreacting to the threat because of the beta blocker, you're able to reappraise the mm. threat and recognize top down, I'm safe right now, right? Because your body is not reacting. Mm. You can experience your threat, your perceived threat in an environment where you're safe enough to recognize that this is not an actual threat to you in this moment. Maybe encountering a tarantula in the wild later is still an actual threat and you should actually react to it. But in this moment, I'm safe. Yes. Right? And it brings everything back to the present. So that is exactly how MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD works, right? This is exactly how our ketamine-assisted therapy treatments work. This is how Apollo works, right? It's the idea that if you can give somebody something that is medication or wearable that sends a safety signal to the body that says by activating the emotional cortex with safety stimuli, either soothing touch through Apollo or biochemically through MDMA, that's saying, I am safe right now. I don't have to go down the road that I already know is well-traveled. Think about my favorite allegory is a Robert Frost poem, right? Take the road less traveled. Oh. Two roads diverge in a yellow wood. I chose to take the road less traveled because you recognize that there's a choice when you're safe. When you're not safe or you perceive yourself to not be safe, you don't even see that there's another road to take, mm. right? Yeah. So all of a sudden, thanks to the soothing touch, thanks to the Apollo, thanks to the MDMA, thanks to the safety that's it's space, the container that's held by the therapist in the CBTE environment, or in this MDMA or ketamine-assisted therapy environment, you are afforded the luxury that you should always have at any moment of remembering, I am safe right now. When you remember I'm safe right now, all of a sudden, you can reappraise your traumatic past or your past that was led you to feel traumatized and carry this trauma with you and then recognize, hey, this thing did happen to me, but it's not my fault. I was just doing the best that I could and... It doesn't define me. It's yeah. just something that I face, that we all face the situations like that. And I've grown from it. And I've become a better, stronger, faster, more resilient person as a result. Look at me today. I've made it, right? And it changes the entire outlook of how you establish meaning for your own self, which in fact is then rewiring our neural networks around safety mm. in association with that thing. I think that is such a good mantra, um, to misuse that word slightly, is this notion of I am safe right now. Because so much of our suffering is anchored in our focus on these traumatic events of the past and then projecting those events into the future as a negative anticipated memory yep and so we're not here now we're there 
in the past and then we're suffering in the future. But right here, right now, I'm actually fine. Now, of course, it takes a lot of wherewithal to be able to go through that. That's a particularly intellectual process. Well, it takes training, right? You have to know that you can't even do that. (laughs) And you have to know what that feels like to do it, which is why MDMA and soothing touch and all these things work is because they give you that bottom-up experience of this is what it feels like to be safe around something that used to threaten you. Yes. Right? And then you can remember what that feels like, and then you can strive for it. You have something to aim for. Right. So you don't aim for it's like so as we let's let's get into some of these specific praxis, but just I I think what you've done is you've you've bracketed them elegantly because really what these are, these are conscious behaviors that you can adopt to essentially we are at the biohacking conference, hack things that are happening below the crust of consciousness. Now I don't love the word hack because hack in some ways sort of uh, suggests that we're moving around it right. to get to it. These are actually things that can actually address it head on. Um, and uh, so when I think of like breath work, for example, maybe we'll just start there, because the breath is unusual in the sense that it is governed by the autonomic nervous system. It, 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 and I mean that it, it's, it's essentially occurring all the time below the crust of consciousness. I suppose until it's not, and that's another topic. <laughs> but we can also consciously um, leverage it to move ourselves in or out of various states. Like we could mm-hmm. actually induce a sympathetic state if we want to. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I actually do want to. So like Wim Hof breathing is actually moving us more into a sympathetic state um, for, let's say, for learning because cortisol and epinephrine are actually somewhat useful for learning, you know, or being alert, mm-hmm. let's say. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, at least in this day and age, we can leverage praxis or breathwork praxis that are actually moving us into the parasympathetic state. Um, so can you poke at a few of these different praxis that you found to be most effective. And then, you know, let's get into the Apollo technology as part of that. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, this is such an interesting topic, right? Because I mean, breath is at the crux of everything that <laughs> is conscious in our lives. If we are b- breathing, I think, you know, to reiterate what you said earlier, breathing can be automatic. It can be governed entirely in the background by our autonomic nervous system, which means that it's changing in response to the environment without us intentionally thinking about it or doing anything at all. Or it can be completely 100% top-down intentional. I decide to breathe now. Mm. I decide to pay attention only to that feeling of the air coming in and out of my nose, mouth, and lungs right now. And again, and the next 10 seconds, right? And so that is what we would often refer to and what many Eastern and tribal traditions refer to as the locus of control, Mm -hmm. right? It is the way we can in any instant always bring ourselves back to the center. Our minds, as you said, can be anywhere. It can be past, present, or future. Usually they're in the past projecting into the future or they can be in some other universe, but our bodies are always here now. They're not going anywhere, right? So everything, all the techniques we're talking about whether they're body work, movement meditation, 
breathing meditation, soothing touch, psychedelic medicines in, in many ways, all of these tools, psychedelic assisted therapy, they're all t- helping us ground our minds back into our bodies, but it's all around breath. Hmm. Breath is the key that unlocks the door to consciousness. Hmm. So once you understand that, then everything else becomes a lot simpler because you can measure how breath changes in response to all the things we're talking about, right? So if you were to put a respiratory band on somebody or even use an Apple Watch now, you can track how heart rate and breathing are changing in response to a traumatic memory, right? A hug, the sound of crashing ocean waves, holding a pet, right? You can measure all of this stuff. And we have been for... 60 years, right? And, and that's where the field of biofeedback came from, which is a fascinating field. I'm actually um, keynoting at the the biofeedback conference in Europe next week oh, wow. um, because biofeedback is the core of where even Apollo came from because it is about this fundamental understanding of how can I, by connecting with my body by in biofeedback, it's visualizing my heart rate and my breath rate, how can I then restore my sense of agency in a, by, through aware, training my awareness about my body. Mm-hmm. If I trained myself to be aware of what my heart rate and my breath rate is doing in relation to how I feel, and I realize that I'm in control of that because I can watch it change on a screen, then I realize I'm in control, mm. right? And so then all of these other techniques fit into that paradigm and can be measured in that in that way, and we can start to understand, okay, well, fast, loud things that too many things, traumatic memories, memories of things where of situations we felt unsafe in, too many responsibilities, too much social media, FOMO, noise, news, et cetera, all of that is sending our heart rate up and our breath rate up and making our breathing more shallow, right? Which is a dominantly, and our blood pressure going up, dominantly sympathetic state. And all of these other things, slow, deep breathing, soothing touch, empathy, eye-to-eye contact, having somebody actually just sit across from you and look at you non-judgmentally and hear you out, which is something that we can all do for each other for free, by the way. I get paid to do it, but we can all do it <laughs> yeah. for free. And I feel like the reason I get paid for it, paid for it, is because nobody other, nobody does it for each other, right? Because yeah. we're not taught how to do it and the importance of it. But It's essentially the only reason I'm a podcast host. <laughs> it's because I can actually be in full connection right here, right now, all there. Right. And that's that's like I mean that that's therapeutic for me having you <laughs> here and probably it is a little bit for you having me uh, doing the same for you because this is what it means to be human is to provide this kind of real connection to each other and we can do that for each other all the time and it reminds us of one really important thing that you know just going back to you know Gabor Mate and mm-hmm. and why I really love his work so much is is that we're dealing with a trust problem mm. right the problem is that we don't trust ourselves. Because we were taught from such a young age that when we presented a version of ourselves to the world, like a sensitive part or a hurt part, that we're not supposed to feel that way, or we're not supposed to be that way, or we're not supposed to express ourselves in that way. And that is a fundamental invalidation of who we are. And when you get enough invalidation, you get enough people, whoever they are that you look up to telling you, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't feel that way, you're not supposed to be that way, all of a sudden you start to think, hey, maybe there's a part of myself that just isn't right right? What's wrong with me? 
there's a part of myself that I am not supposed to be or that's yeah. not okay in me. And then we end up starting to present to the world a version of ourselves that's not who we actually are. And that is one of the sources of all trauma, yeah, which we is become, universal yeah. to humanity. Yeah, we become lonely with ourselves, basically. And, and afraid to be alone at and the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, it might be said that loneliness is a is a loneliness with ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, I mean, and we become alienated from a part of ourselves. And essentially, you know, back to Gabor, essentially, if you get wounded, well, let's take a wound. Let's say, you know, you, you know, you scrape your arm, you know, on a, on a sidewalk or something. I don't know how you would do that. You'd probably have to fall. Yeah. Um, yeah, you trip on something, you fall. You, you trip on something, you yeah. fall. You know, if you treat it and, uh, you know, clean it, wound and, and clean wound in it, it'll heal. Um, otherwise, it could get infected, but also it can scar. Mm -hmm. And that scarring creates a numbness. So if you have a wound and you're not properly treating it, that can scar. And that scar can be internal mm -hmm. and you can become numb to it. And essentially that is a form of alienation with yourself. And when you become alienated with yourself, then you are more apt to look for external agents to assuage perceived deficiencies, discontents, and of course, that leads us down many, many detrimental roads, addiction of any sort, Instagram, right. chocolate cake, <laughs> yeah. alcohol, you crack. You don't trust you your, if you don't trust yourself to make yourself feel good and to heal yourself, which is inherent to all of us, then you're going to seek, you're going to teach yourself that you need something from outside to get you there. That's right. Right. But it really comes from us. Yeah. And then, of course, you have a culture that's telling you consistently that you're not enough and right. that it markets trinkets, products, services to assuage those particular discontents. And then you're like, oh, well, I'm going to get that and then I'll be happy. Right. And the second you open up the box, some other shiny, <laughs> bright object appears on the horizon. You're like, no, I'm going to get that. Right. And then you're on this hedonic treadmill that that goes and goes and goes. So I think what, this point that you brought up about the breath being kind of the ultimate metric almost that can sort of um, uh, be the aegis almost under which all of these other metrics can sit because you can use it as a as a as a um, representative of, almost of like well where am I mm -hmm. uh, in my physiological state so I think that's really great to establish because uh, it is very it's actually very easy to measure. Um, and and you don't need to become aware of too. Right. Own. Like you don't need to wear, have a wearable um, right. to measure it per se. You can just become aware of it. Although you can, <laughs> there are many, many wearables that you can leverage and we can talk about that. In fact, um, I, I noticed that uh, you have the same ancient wearable that I have. Maybe the first wearable was so you wear some mala beads around mm -hmm. your wrist. Um, and that, that might be wearable uh, 1.0. Yeah. Um, where uh, you know where you can use you know the malas the beads to literally as notes um, as you breathe. So that's you know if I take them off my wrist and I engage in some kind of meditation practice that's breath or vipassana oriented, you know I can just 
thumb, put the beads between my forefinger, forefinger right. and my thumb and just kind of use them in that particular way. That is a very, uh, that's not a wearable that leverages a tremendous amount of technology, but still, well, actually it's a very good technology. It's an ancient technology, yeah. but, um, but now of course, you know, we're into all sorts of very interesting wearables. Um, you know, Apollo being really, really interesting one because it, I think it moves wearables into kind of a 3.0 area because it's not just reflective of particular biomark biometrics essentially, but it's actually interactive. Right. Um, so get into it a little bit around the science of it and uh, and how it can help um, move us back into greater parasympathetic sympathetic balance. So so Apollo is a Apollo Neuro. The, what you're wearing and what I'm wearing here on my chest is a mm. small wearable that effectively is the first wearable to use touch as an output. So it's not a tracker. It is a effectively a digital therapeutic that delivers soothing sound waves to the skin, music composed for your skin based on the neuroscience of how music works on the brain mm. that can reliably nudge your autonomic nervous system either up or down to facilitate access to your goals, which would be anything from anything that you'd use music for, sleep, focus, meditation, unwinding at the end of the day, socializing, dancing, working out, waking up, whatever, right? Because that's what music does. It's rhythm that we apply from the outside helps us get into the zone and it turns out that rhythm as we were talking about earlier with live shows doesn't need to be just heard you can feel it and you can use that feeling whether it's through the skin or through your ears to get you into or to nudge you into the goal state you want to get into more easily and the basic principles of it are a combination of what we just talked about right so it's the idea that of, of exposure therapy mm -hmm. uh and breathing. So breathing and biofeedback are so interesting because when you breathe intentionally, when you take a breath that you've taken a moment, say, okay, I'm going to take a deep breath right now. And I'm just going to focus on the feeling. So it's combining intention. Like we talked about earlier, it's, it's the true expression of truest expression of free will in any moment. I'm combining my intention with my attention, right? I'm going to breathe and then pay only attention to the feeling of that breath, mm -hmm. right? We do that, and as soon as we breathe and as soon as we direct our fullest or as much of our attention as we can to the feeling of the air coming in, it instantly sends a signal to our emotional cortex of our brain, that said, which sends a signal to our amygdala, our fear center, that says, hey, amygdala, you don't need to be blasting off right now saying that I'm a threat because if you were actually in, if I was actually in threat, I would not be able to take the time to pay attention to this feeling of the soothing breath coming into my nose, mouth, and lungs right now. I'd be running from that lion. Because we evolved over, again, hundreds of millions of years to re respond to threat in that way. Our brains, our bodies do not allow us to deviate attention to taking a nice, long, slow, deep breath when there's a lion outside our tent. It says, get the fuck out of there, right? So just engaging in that practice is a safety practice that reminds us that we have the time to restore our sense of safety and autonomy and agency and control in mm -hmm. that moment right now, right? So you take that 
safety practice and you re- and then look at okay what else gives me that kind of experience well soothing touch gives me that experience right if i am having a horrible day and i get out of my car and i get home and a friend or or, or a loved one gives me a hug i'm no longer thinking about what a crappy day i had i'm thinking about how good this hug feels why because that hug is sending a signal to my emotional cortex, which tells my amygdala to shut up because there's not actually a threat. I just had a really hard day at work. And I'm not going to die, right? <laughs> and I can still feel good and enjoy this hug right now. Mm-hmm. And that is more important right now. It brings me back to the present. Now apply that to any potentially threatening situation that you might be in, like traffic on your way to work. You're in traffic on your way to work. You're like, oh my God, I could be late, whatever. So you think about starting to rush. You think about starting to cut somebody off. And all of a sudden, you realize that there's this nice gentle buzzing on your leg or your arm or your chest. And you start to feel that and you start to say, oh, wow, that actually feels kind of good, right? And then what that's sending is that same signal to your brain that says, hey, if I have the time to feel this right now and pay attention and be present with this nice gentle feeling, that soothing I can't possibly be running from a lion right now. And whether we're consciously aware of it or not, our emotional brain is saying, hey, amygdala, you don't need to blast off right now. You don't need to send divert resources to skeletal muscles and heart and lungs. You can stay in the chill zone. You can stay in the recovery zone. Cutting off that guy in front of you could put you in danger. Let's take it easy. You'll get there. You're not going to die. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like a remote wearable therapeutic it's almost like Dave's calling you. <laughs> it's like Dave's because Dave's not home, man. <laughs> because obviously you can be providing that kind of support in talk therapy. You know, and we do. And you do. Yeah. But you can't be there every moment of the day. Exactly. And so in a way, you can wear Dave on your wrist. I mean, I'm just being yeah. silly. But you know, but that this is a reminder that you are okay. But it's also more than that because it's attuned um, vibrationally to uh, elicit a a parasympathetic response. Right, which comes from the biofeedback world because biofeedback did this tremendous discovery or, or contributed this tremendous discovery to science which said, hey, by the way, when we put meditators in biofeedback experiences, we can see that when they start to enter a meditative state, this is what their breath patterns look like. Right, mm. and when they, and then when people who don't meditate start to enter those, do those same breath patterns. Look what happens to them. Oh, huh. their body's calming down. Right, yeah. their heart rate's slowing down, and their their thoughts are slowing down. And oh, by the way, when these people have PTSD and they start doing this in 120 seconds or five minutes or whatever, most of them are saying they feel less anxious. Mm. Right, they're able to feel less hypervigilant, less scanning of threat in the environment. Wait, maybe. Maybe there's something special about this five to seven breaths per minute pattern, right? Right. Maybe that five to seven breaths per minute of intentional breath is actually part of the key that unlocks access to recovery states by reminding us we're safe enough to start to divert more resources to recovery and the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. Okay, that's pretty cool. So then we saw that and we evaluated, you know, many decades of research and we're like, okay, well, it turns out that's not just breathing that does this. It's light oscillating at five to seven times per minute. Mm. It's music oscillating at five to seven times per minute. And in fact, it's also touch oscillating at five to seven times per minute. And so we thought, okay, well, 
that's pretty cool. So let's take that knowledge and learnings from biofeedback and let's see if we can put it into a wearable and see what happens when you strap it on people in stressful environments. And well, what happens is in double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled crossover studies at the universities, their cognitive performance improves and their HRV improves and they access meditative states more deeply and more quickly. And the rate at which that they improve has and their H is directly correlated with how much their HRV goes up. Yeah. The more you balance the nervous system with soothing stimulation, like soothing vibration from Apollo, the more cognitive performance you get out of yourself, which is literally to say you could get potentially 25% more questions right on your SATs, <laughs> right? By just doing some deep breathing before you walk through that door. Think about how powerful that is. 25%? I would have gotten into all of my top tier schools if I'd known that, <laughs> you know? Instead, I had to struggle a little bit, but, you know, I wish somebody had told me. Yeah. You know, that's so easy. <laughs> right, yeah. It's like getting extra time. Um, yeah. Can you explain heart rate variability for a moment for, for people that might not be familiar with HIV? Sure. So heart rate variability is something that was discovered because of the field of biofeedback. Mm -hmm. And it is effectively how much our heartbeat, the time between each beat of our heart changes over time. Yeah. So most people think that our heart, when we say our heart beats 60 beats per minute, that it's exactly one second between each beat. That is not how it works. Every time we take a breath, that increases the amount of air in our lungs, which changes the resistance in the vessels in our lungs that our heart is pumping blood through. As the resistance of our lungs in the, gets higher, it gets harder for the heart to pump blood through those vessels. As the resistance gets lower, it gets easier for the heart to pump through those vessels, which mm -hmm. means sometimes it takes less time for the heart to pump, and sometimes it takes more time for the heart to pump, which means that there is a difference between each beat. Sometimes it's 1.2 seconds between each beat, and sometimes it's 0.8 seconds between each beat, and there's a variability there. Right. And so it just so happens through studying tens of thousands of people in these biofeedback experiments and in many, many other settings like cardiovascular rehab and um, elite athletes and military that this, this, I, this concept of HRV became a, a metric that we can measure not really well in the moment, but over time mm -hmm. that shows us how balanced and recovered the body is. The more variability we have between each beat, the less beats per minute our heart is typically beating. So it's inversely correlated with heart rate. The right. lower our heart rate, the more time between each beat, the more variability, the more likely we are to bounce back from stress, the more recovered we are, the more likely we are to perform consistently at our peak, and the less likely we are to make mistakes and the less likely we are to get sick. So we want to aim for a HRV that's trending upward. It doesn't. There's no absolute number, but we want it to trend upward, just like we want our resting heart rate to generally trend downward. It's a little bit uninstinctual for people, right? Because you might think that you don't want a lot of variability in heart rate, right? That you want a very even. You don't heart. under stress, yeah, because the heart rate's very high, and True. and each beat is so close together that you want the heart to just be getting the blood to where yeah. it's supposed to go, yeah, right. But under relaxation right. states, we want that HRV to be high because it means that we're more likely to adapt to whatever's coming our way and bounce back from that threat when it's gone. Mm -hmm. What is your general feeling about um, the prescription of uh, SSRIs and, and other kind of you know, antidepressants that are seem to be flooded the market? Well, there's a place for them. 
I, I, you know, first off, I'll say I have clients who I prescribe them to because they work for some people. However, they also don't work for a lot of people. And like any medication, there's no medication that works for everyone. There's no solution that works for everyone except maybe breath work, uh, intentional breathing, but, uh, and things like soothing touch. But ultimately, medications, for the most part, particularly if we're just going to focus on SSRIs for an inst- for a moment, you're talking about like Zoloft, Prozac, Paxil, things like that. Right. They they all have side effects, right? And so ultimately, thinking about med- medicine from the practice of medicine from the ancient historical origins of medicine, <laughs> the the father of medicine, or which you know Hippocrates. Who, who said, you know, first, do no harm, yeah. which we often forget. And this is the motto of the Board of Medicine. You know, we're really talking about thinking about patient care first from the standpoint of not what do I need to do to fix your problem, but how do I first not mess things up before I make things better, right? How do I think about helping you fix your problem without accidentally making it worse or giving you another problem that you then have to solve. Right. And what the problem, a big problem that has occurred is these medicines have become like SSRIs have become widely available. And most of the people who prescribe them are family medicine doctors. They're people who don't have psychiatry training. They're nurse practitioners, mm. very nice people, generally yeah. overworked, generally might only have five to 10 minutes to evaluate a patient and then they're prescribing a medication because the patient comes in checking off all the boxes for depression and they want to leave with something in their hand that could potentially help them and they do not even have the time to understand that that potentially could stop them from having orgasms in the future hmm. right that's a serious side effect that people need to know about should it be the first line probably not Right. It doesn't mean it doesn't work for some people, but I think the question is, when is the right time to bring it into the treatment plan? Mm-hmm. And what our philosophy is at the Board of Medicine and in general with clinical practice is that we take a Hippocratic philosophy, which is try the least invasive stuff first. Try the stuff that has absolutely zero chance or nearly zero chance of causing a side effect to a, a patient, which would be lifestyle modification, talk therapy, some gentle well-studied supplements and things of that nature first. If those fail, then maybe think about SSRIs, ketamine-assisted therapy, which is very safe when administered properly, and things of that nature that are a little more invasive. But I don't even consider that stuff. I don't even consider the prescription medication stuff until we've already tried all the stuff that has no side effects. Because the stuff that has side effects can put the patient at risk and that's just not worth it so again it's not to say that it's all bad or all good it's just let's figure out how to respectfully use the medicine so that people are more likely to get the best results with the least risk yeah isn't there some metric based around number needed to treat Mm -hmm. to like induce a positive response versus potential side effect response Mm -hmm. um number needed to harm number needed to treat right Yeah. yeah yeah Where does the balance of that exist around something like Paxil or Zoloft or or, or Prozac? I can't give you the exact statistics, but I can tell you that for most, it depends on the disorder, of course. But but I um, I think that in the domain that I work in, which is predominantly PTSD and depression 
um, in PTSD, the numbers are not good. The only medications that we have FDA approved to date for PTSD that have been the only medications, I think, for the last 20 years that have been FDA approved are Paxil and Zoloft. And our remission rates, meaning the rate of people, the percentage of people who are able to go through two or less treatment protocols, full treatment courses with an antidepressant mm -hmm. of these two varieties and do the full treatment course and have 50% or less symptoms at, uh, at one year out is, or longer out is under 30% or 30% or less. So that means that 70% of people roughly in, in certain studies are still heavily symptomatic yeah. after two or two courses, full yeah. courses of the two drugs that are FDA approved SSRIs to treat PTSD. That is a horrible statistic. Yeah. That is a really, really sad statistic that is is not promising for our patients or for us. And it actually makes us all really frustrated, right? And so that's why medic that's why tools like Apollo were we put so much effort into it. And that's why we're spending so much time trying to study MDMA assisted therapy, right? Because MDMA assisted therapy is actually the opposite result. I mean, it's showing that with just not multiple times daily dosing with SSRIs, it's showing three doses of medicine and 42 hmm. hours of psychotherapy over 12 weeks is inducing 67% or greater remission rates in people with, on average, 17.6 years of PTSD hmm. at one year out. Wow. There has been, it is the literal flip, flip of what we're seeing with Paxil and Zoloft. And there has never been anything that has worked so well in the history of psychiatry ever wow right so it's really that's, exciting time to be in the field yeah because we're starting to get these tools coming down the pipeline and right after um like a generation of of essential deceleration of, of innovation it seemed like and now it's just like crazy there's mm -hmm. so much exciting stuff right and you're right at the tip of the spear of it it's so exciting um let me ask you something um uh, as we just close out a little bit, that is uh, connected but somewhat separate around our our music passion. So I remember um, being in a very crowded club, and as I spent most of my twenties <laughs> and thirties, and I was um, watching my brother's band, and uh, there is a um, absolutely virtuosic, just technically gifted. Um, B3 organ player mm. in the band. And he played all the bass lines in his left hand. And he had rigged up his B3 organ such that his left hand would produce the bass, but not just the bass sounds from the actual organ itself, it would produce these subsonic mm. uh, frequencies. And so the whole club would just like shake. Um, and, and then he was kind of virtuosic over the top, too, and doing mm -hmm. all these kind of Jimmy Smith lines. And then he'd kind of lay into a chord the way an organ can, and just like the whole crowd would just explode. Sounds you know? like my kind of show. And people would be just <laughs> jumping up and down. The band was so loud. And, so um, loud. Yeah. Oh, I love that band. Yeah, it's my oh, brother's amazing. band. Yeah. Oh, wow. And yeah, I'm, I'm I know the trumpet player. Okay. That's so funny. That's your brother's band. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I world. managed them for 13 years. Oh, amazing. So One of my was, favorites, favorite yeah. funk bands. So, um, so Adam Deitch, who is a fantastic drummer, we were standing together in the audience and, uh, and he like pulls at me and he, you know, 
yells into my ear because that's the only way I would hear him at that point. And he goes, Neil, he makes everyone feel the same. And I looked around and sure enough, like everyone has the same look on their face, mm -hmm. you know, bright eyed, big smiles, jumping up and down, you yeah. know, just pure exhilaration, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, it was, it was really interesting. I've thought about that for years and I, in, I interviewed a neuroscientist, uh, Israeli neuroscientist. I, I can't remember his name right now. Um, but he had done a number of interesting experiments where he put, um, like 50 or 60 people in a theater and then, and they all, um, are wearing like a, uh, an fMRI, fMRI um, like little electrodes on their on their head. And he would then flash images on a screen and also then play music into the theater and then sometimes conjoin the images and the music. And he was looking for instances where everyone's brain lit up at the same time in the same place. And, uh, of course, he ended up getting a marketing job <laughs> out of that, which is, uh, um, uh, of course, a little disappointing. But, um, but it was fascinating. And, you know, it got me thinking about, like, what is it about music that makes everyone feel the same? And, you know, oftentimes, you know, people say, well, it's universal language and it's more effective than you know, particular spoken languages because it can, can, can transcend vocabulary and the use of particular words. And, mm -hmm. um, but is some music intrinsically sad or intrinsically healing? You know, if I were to play a chord like a C, an E flat, a G, and a D. So it's a C minor nine, let's mm -hmm. say, on a piano. Mm -hmm. That is, for me, in my culture, at least, a sad sound. Mm -hmm. But is that a cultural phenomenon? Or is there something intrinsic about the combination of certain frequencies that is that transcends culture? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. My, my dad, <laughs> he asks this question all the time. He, he just taught himself to play piano at 75 years old. Uh, he's always wanted to play. And it's just such an, it's such a fascinating question. You know, I think I can't, I can't give you the answer from myself because I can tell you, I don't know, but what I can tell you is from what I've read, you know, if you were to ask Pythagoras, who developed the circle of fifths, which governs the construction of the chords that you just chord you just described as culturally sad, interpreted right as culturally yeah. sad, which is true. It's a minor chord, right? Yeah. Um, if you were to ask Pythagoras from th you know thousands of years BC, who deduced the circle of fifths by looking at the stars and the planets and tracking them over time with a string on a like a string with nails or whatever on a board, right? then I think he would say that it's universal, right? It has nothing to do with culture at all. It has to do with vibratory frequency and how vibratory frequency is creating either resonance 
or dissonance or harmony or disharmony basically with certain frequencies of our vibrating bodies because everything around us is vibrating at different frequencies yeah right and so if there probably is a certain frequency of sadness mm. and there's probably a certain frequency of joy and happiness and they're different and so if you create if you put it put the body into a situation where it's exposed to frequencies like a c minor nine of which is characteristically thought of as sad whether you know it's sad or not it can induce feelings of melancholy or feelings of sadness in the body even at a pre-verbal level at a level where you don't even necessarily know what sadness is you can still feel it and identify it right right which is part of the reason why i think music is so interesting because of rhythm and and melody but rhythm in particular is pre-verbal so it impacts the body in a way that doesn't require words yeah, it's not an abstraction. Right. We don't need to give it a symbol. Right. We can just actually experience the sensation of it. Right. Right. And yeah. it bring and it makes you present too, because one that what you were describing with one of my favorite funk bands, and, and yeah. now I can relate to it directly because I remember being at my soul live shows, which yeah. was so fun when I was in college. You know, and and being in those environments was always so fascinating to me because you're looking around and you're like, wow. This is not just an experience that I am having. We're all having this together. Yeah. Right. And and part of what always stood out to me about those experiences that was so interesting is that there isn't there is an attentional component to it. Right. There's this pre there's this preverbal communication of the music to us from the instrumentalists who are all paying attention to the music themselves because they're all in perfect harmony with each other, performing and listening to each other because if they weren't listening to each other, the music would sound like crap. Right. So they're in perfect harmony with each other, performing on stage, all paying attention to the same thing. And we as the audience are all paying attention to them and therefore to the music. And we're all paying attention to the same thing at the same time, which creates this mm. very interesting phenomena that probably has lots of names, but it's almost it's almost like collective conscious experience. Right. That's what it is. Yeah. I mean, I think collective joy or collective sadness or collective grief, there is something beautiful about both, really. Mm -hmm. You know, I lived in, in New York City um, at 9-11 and in the aftermath of 9-11, and the collective grief was actually, it was short-lived in, in some ways, but it was actually beautiful it's to therapeutic. see. Yeah. And, um, um, and, and this, you know, phenomenon of of empathy around something that is jointly felt it essentially melts the the ice cube of separation mm -hmm. this notion that we feel like separate individuals mm -hmm. in a separate external universe separate from each other and separate from nature and separate from any concept of what might be the divine mm-hmm and um, and we feel it's mystical in that way that we go from feeling separate to feeling as part a part of an interconnected web of life. And that is something that we desperately need. And it's been our superpower all this time, right? We've just <laughs> forgotten about it. That's actually what my talk is about here. My keynote tomorrow is about our superpower as collective adaptation, mm. right? Because we all possess the ability to adapt to stress and overcome stress and grow from it as individuals in isolation. 
but that's not gonna that's not gonna get us through the 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 intense environmental threats that we face that we have faced over thousands of years as a community. What yeah. gets us through the real threat to our entire race, to our entire species of humanity, is working together, collaborative adaptation through empathy. Mm. Right, that is our real superpower. That is what separates us from most of the animals who do not have the capacity to survive tremendous environmental catastrophe because they are not able to use tools and work together the way that we are because of this yeah. language, right? Cooperating flexibly at scale. Mm -hmm. That is unique. At any scale. To this species. Right. It's incredible. And we don't value it at all. No. We treat each other like shit. <laughs> you know, we do, we're just like, it's all about me. It's all about me. And it's like, wait, snap out of it for a second and recognize that we're as different as you might think you are from everybody else because of all the ways we look and appear different on the surface and mm -hmm. sound different. We are all 100% human first. And I challenge you to disprove that. <laughs> right? We are all 100% human first, no matter how different you think we are. You know what that means? We all have the same fundamental needs water air food acceptance by our peers mm -hmm. sleep right we all shelter we all need those things if we don't have those things if any one of us doesn't have those things it's a hit to all of us yeah right no man is an island yeah alan watts has this um beautiful metaphor where he talks about the cells in a hand He's like, you could um, look at the cells in your hand with them under a microscope, and there is a tremendous amount of space between each cell. You could see um, the cells in your hand or a particular cell as an individual, but you would never um, recognize your hand as anything but a hand. Right. And, uh, and, we need to recognize ourselves as nothing else but a human species living within a holobiont, if you will, where we are absolutely 100% dependent on each other. And the earth. And the earth. And I think that that is a perfect um, bracket or a bookend to conversation number one here because there is a separate conversation that we need to have about soil and the interconnection between planetary soil, human health. And mm -hmm. so if you're willing to have that one, then to be continued. <laughs> it would be my pleasure. This is really fun. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Dave Raven. Now check out the Apollo wearable. I've been wearing it for about two months. It sends soothing vibrations to your nervous system, promoting stress resilience and improving sleep, focus, recovery, and more. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, then you have a sense for how much effort we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. 
You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, and you can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with any suggestions, criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Fred, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.